Good morning, Grace Vineyard, and everybody else joining us listening to this talk via our website or YouTube. You are very welcome, and I hope that this series we are going through in the book of Acts is an encouragement to you. If this is your first time joining us, you can find all of the previous talks in this series and much, much more on our website and YouTube channel. My name is Mark Stoneham, and just to give you a bit of my background and that of my wife, Christine, we became followers of Jesus in our teens. We became part of the vineyard movement in 1997, and we've been involved with many vineyard churches over those years. And we joined Grace Vineyard just before the COVID-19 lockdown began. So most of those of you who are part of this church will have only seen us on your PC, tablet or mobile phone screens on the weekly Zoom meetings. This morning we continue our journey through the book of Acts, tracking how the early church was birthed, how it grew and the challenges that it faced along the way. To just give a quick recap of what we've seen on our journey so far, Mark Visser, our senior pastor, and Mike Sutton, one of our leaders, took us through chapter one over three weeks, looking at our role as witnesses, what it means to be the bride of Christ, and comparing the similarities between the end of Acts chapter one and the beginning of Acts chapter two, and the situation that we find ourselves in with lockdown and coronavirus and social distancing. Eddie Miles took on chapter two and asked us a number of questions regarding how we see and respond to the Holy Spirit. Mike Sutton took on chapter three and asked us questions a question, do we live our lives as crippled beggars or as disciples that do the stuff that Jesus commanded us to do? Andy Bedsley took on chapter four and asked, in times of isolation and uncertainty, where do we find our peace? How do we live our lives in these times and what and who are we listening to? And then Ray Cross uh, continued the series and took on chapter five, where Ananias and Sapphira lie and what you know, that whole situation can mean for us today. And he also looked at the apostles being imprisoned, awaiting a hearing by the Sanhedrin and their miraculous escape. Which brings us to chapter six, which I've titled Obstacles or Opportunities. So let's get to our reading. Acts chapter six, verses one to seven in the New International Version. Uh, the choosing of the seven. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows had been overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and six others, some whose names I can't pronounce, so I'm not going to try. And they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Lord, as we start, would you speak to us this morning? Thank you, Lord, for this account of the beginning of your church, the amazing things that happened, the obstacles they faced, and how by your grace you turned them into opportunities to grow your kingdom. 
Help us by your Holy Spirit to turn the obstacles we face into opportunities for you. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's take a quick look back at chapter two uh, and the beginning of the birth of these followers away as we know they were called at the beginning. And we read that Peter stood up and addressed the crowd that had gathered that morning because something strange had happened in Jerusalem uh, and they wanted to know what was going on. So Peter explains to them who Jesus was and what's going on and, and 3,000 believe and are added to the, the church that day. Then in chapter four, we see that all the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. But then we see growing pains start. <laughs> Here in chapter 6, verse 1, we see the first signs of grumbling and possible division among these new believers. Let's read Acts 6, 1 again. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them, complained against Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now on first looks, this could be dismissed as a simple administration problem or misunderstanding uh, as this community grew. Remember the original group of disciples in Acts 1.15 were just 120 and then in one day grew to over 3,000. So by chapter 6, there were what four, five, six thousand believers, something like that. That's a lot of people for twelve apostles to manage, and no mean feat to do a daily distribution of food for. But this is much more than just a problem of administration and management. This is an attack by the devil on this baby church community. We've already seen in previous chapters the first attacks by the devil to try and destroy what God was doing. First, he tried to destroy it by using the Jewish authorities to suppress it by force and threats of persecution in chapter 4. Then through Ananias and Sapphira to corrupt it by the hypocrisy in chapter 5. Now he tries the more subtle approach of distraction. You see, if he can tie the apostles up in administration and sidetrack them into social care of the growing number of followers of Jesus, essential though that is, he would succeed in getting them to neglect their calling and God-given responsibility of prayer and teaching and therefore leave this ever-growing band of new believers without any defence against false teaching, which we see a lot of through the rest of the New Testament and a lot of what Paul writes is to counteract false teaching in the churches. In our Connect group, we are focusing on Psalm 23 at the moment and in this and this is being linked to Jesus telling his hearers in John 10 that he is the good shepherd. And then in verse 10 of that chapter, Jesus says this, The thief comes only to steal, kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And this is exactly what's happening here in chapter 6. The devil is trying to steal, kill and destroy what God is building. And he still uses this tactic today. He will try and distract us in any way he can from doing the things God has prepared for us to do. And we know that God has prepared stuff for us because Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And what are these works? 
Well, in 1 Corinthians 12, 27 to 28, in the message, it says this. You are Christ's body. That's who you are. You must never forget this. Only as you accept your part of that body does your part mean anything. You're familiar with some of the parts that God has formed in his church, which is his body. Apostles, prophets, teachers, miracle workers, healers, helpers, organisers, those who pray in tongues. And this list is just a sample of the gifts God has given to his people. So we need to watch out for the things that would distract us from fulfilling our particular purpose, however good and noble they may be, because God has made each one of us to play a special part in his plan for humanity. So that's the first thing to take from this passage. Don't become distracted. Stay on course, for God has a plan for each one of us, and it is good. The second thing I notice is racial tension. Um, Look again at verse 1, the second part. The Hellenistic Jews among them complain against the Hebraic Jews. Now this is the first racial tension we see rising up in the church. And again, it's a distraction that the devil is trying to use to split and destroy the church. The distinction between the two groups goes way beyond their their origin and language, right down to their cultural roots. The Hellenistic Jews would not only have spoken Greek, but they thought and believed like Greeks. And in Jerusalem, they were likely the more the poorer minority group. Whereas the Hebraic Jews spoke Aramaic and they were deeply immersed in the dominant Hebrew culture. The tension and rival between these two groups has gone on for a long, long time before this. At one point in Jewish history, during the Maccabean Revolt, which happened in the 400 years between the Old and New Testaments, the Hebraic Jews while they were reclaiming Jerusalem to re-establish Jewish worship, even killed Hellenistic Jews because they believed them to be inferior and not true Jews. So there is a lot of history between these two groups. And there is more to this dispute than uh, a dispute over food distribution. And the mistrust and division between these two cultures is beginning to surface in this new community of believers. But Jesus died to demolish such a vision because we are citizens of the kingdom of God. Paul reinforces his truth when addressing discrimination and prejudice in Galatia. And we read in Galatians 3, 26 to 28. This is in the New Living Translation. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer uh, Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And that's the important bit. Let me read that again. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What Paul says here levels the playing field for everyone. And in doing so, he demolishes all of the discriminations, the barriers, the distinctions, the prejudice we as human beings have used against each other for centuries. Let's look at what Paul is really saying here. No longer Jew or Gentile. By saying that, he's removing all the national, cultural, ethnic and racial barriers of discrimination. No longer slave or free. Removes all social, class, educational and economic barriers of discrimination. 
no longer male and female, removes all sexual barriers of discrimination. For we are all one in Jesus. We are all made in God's image, as it tells us in Genesis. Sadly, humanity made in God's image isn't following this, still suffer from all of these cultural, ethnic, social, economic and sexual distinctions and prejudices. And the only real solution is Jesus. And just to pick up on one other point here, and that is that the dispute arose because widows were being overlooked. Slide 11, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. In the culture of the day, widows were to be looked after by their families. The extended family, that's what it was. But having become followers of Jesus, these widows would have been disowned by any family they had. Therefore, they were reliant on their new church community for all their needs, but they were not getting the support they were promised. So for the apostles, this was a defining moment in the life of this growing community of believers and raised a number of issues. Who really matters in the new kingdom of God? Is this gospel of Jesus really good news for everybody? Is it for every race? Is it for Gentiles and everybody else or just the Jews? And how can they continue as this multicultural community overcome the division and prejudice that is trying to creep in and destroy it? With the very sad and senseless death of George Floyd and then just last weekend, Rayshard Brooks, the continued racial tension in many nations has come to the surface again. The ongoing protests across the world at this time are shining a spotlight on racial prejudice, and rightly so. But as I watch the news and see what people are posting on social media, the message is already being lost, and some are using it for more dangerous and destructive agendas. As Mark and Jill said in their emotional statement two weeks ago, black lives do matter. And we as a church stand with all those who have suffered prejudice and brutality at the hands of others. But it has to go further. And I can't see that the way protests are now being hijacked and the hatred that is being poured out across social media and on our streets is going to do anything to solve the ever-deepening divisions in society. All lives matter to God. And the stand for fairness and equality against discrimination in all its forms is part of the mission of the church. In, in the message again, in 1 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5, we read this. The world is unprincipled. It's dog eat dog out there. The world doesn't fight fair, but we don't live or fight our battles that way. We never have and we never will. The tools of our trade aren't for marketing or manipulation, but they are for demonstrating and demolishing, sorry, the entire massive corrupt culture. We use our powerful God tools for smashing warped philosophies, tearing down barriers erected against the truth of God. That truth is that Jesus is the only solution, the only way back to reconciliation and relationship with God and therefore each other. That's why Jesus lived, died and rose again. John 3.16, the most well-known verse in the Bible, as many have always said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Now, some listening to this may disagree with me on that last point and may 
They even accuse me of religious superiority. But this is the truth that I believe and have centered my life on. And it's okay to disagree, but turning a difference of opinion into a reason for attacking others and even murdering them, as history has testified has happened so many times, cannot be the answer. So back to our main passage and the squabble between the Hellenistic and Hebraic Jews, which got us to this point. The apostles saw that this was more than just cultural tension, more than racial tension. There were deeper issues over and above the one of social administration that was threatening to divert them from their purpose of teaching and prayer. And as a growing community of Jesus followers uh, in Grace Vineyard Purley, we will face tensions of our own. We're currently a relatively small community, but as we grow, there will be changes in the way we do church, inevitably, uh, when we eventually get back to a meeting at the school hall, that is. Uh, the bigger we get, the more changes we will have to make. We may need to change the layout and lose the tables to fit more people in, and this will change the atmosphere of the service and some won't like it. The bigger we get, the harder it will be for people to connect, easier for people to feel anonymous, and the harder it will be to see newcomers. It will get to the point where we can't know everyone and relationships and friendships will change and some will find that more difficult. More leaders will be needed for connect groups and other areas of service within the church and we will need to guard against some people feeling left out or marginalised and not burning out others. The number of programmes and courses we're able to resource will grow and so we'll need more people full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom to run them and, and on and on it goes. So what's the solution? The apostles realised that there is a real problem here, as we said. Even though they have their hands full, they want to put this right. So what do they do to overcome the issue and attack on the church? Well, rather than brush the problem under the carpet or impose their authority in this situation, they call a meeting of all the followers of, of Jesus, Hebraic and Hellenistic, Jew and Greek, and ask them to help resolve it. And one thing to note here is the apostles uh, believe what the Greek followers are saying. And that's important to note. As I said, they don't brush the problem under the carpet. There's no attempt to blame anyone for this oversight or accuse the Greek followers or the widows of being petty. They don't tell the widows to be content with what they have. And a second point to note, the apostles quickly look for a solution. And in that, they don't see this as a threat to their position or authority. They don't want to create a bottleneck of red tape. They want the best solution to meet the needs of the community and the marginalised and the most vulnerable that, that they have. And their solution is to share their power, which again in the culture was, was unheard of. They, their solution is to share their power and they ask the community to select seven men who are versatile, full of the spirit and wisdom, i.e. gifted in business and administration, to take on this responsibility so that they can devote themselves to prayer and teaching. Now, many have said, and theologians have, have thought about this uh, over the years, um, that all of the seven names listed in Acts 6 are Greek, 
and it's been suggested that these seven were all chosen from the minority Hellenistic group to satisfy those who were complaining. Now that may be the case, and that would be great. Or it could just be that as Acts was written by Luke in Greek, any Hebraic names were translated into Greek when he wrote it. It's therefore more likely that there were a mix of both groups in these seven that were chosen. That would obviously be the, the fairest option to, to, to choose. Um, the important thing to note here, though, is that these seven were chosen by the community of believers, not the apostles, because they were all honest and trustworthy, and as verse 3 put it, full of the spirit and wisdom. One other point to note here is that there is no superiority play going on by the apostles. Our English translations of the second part of verse 2 all seem to use pretty much the word table. And as it reads, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. So you might be inclined to think, you know, a bit stuck up, you know, that they might be implying that service to the poor, doing the accounts, ordering the tea and coffee and biscuits, running kids' church, setting up week in, week out, and the daily running of the community were beneath them, and that prayer and preaching the word were far more important. But that's not the case. We read in Acts 4, all the believers were of one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. So that would have been the same in, in what they said and did as well. And there are many other passages in the New Testament that demonstrate the priority of the apostles and the church put on acts of service and meeting the needs of the poor and the vulnerable. And this has been true of the church the present day. So it can't have been a power play by the apostles. The word used for both ministry of the word and ministry of service in the Greek translation is the same, diakonia, which can mean ministry, service, relief, or support. So they use the same word for both things, so they're not making a distinction. Therefore, the tasks of prayer, preaching the good news, and serving the community in administration or whatever else it might be, are all of equal importance. The only difference being the gifts needed to do them. And so the apostles lay hands on the seven chosen, pray for them and commission them for this service to the community of believers. So what's the result of all of this? Well, firstly, this third attempt by the devil to destroy the church and stop it from growing through division, busyness, and silence in their witness is defeated. We read in verse seven, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And secondly, how? Because in this growing community of believers, the apostles gave away power and leadership. They didn't try and hold on to it. As I said, they didn't see it as a threat to them. This enabled them for the community to be able to be able to look after uh, the poor and the vulnerable that culture around and ignored and discarded. But also by sharing power, it freed up the apostles to stick to their calling of praying and preaching the good news of the kingdom. And if you've been around the vineyard movement for any length of time, 
you will know that we have always been committed to giving away leadership and raising up and sending out new leaders, serving the poor and the vulnerable, so that kingdom of God can grow. But also remember that the seven chosen that the apostles shared leadership with, most of which, or some of which, were non-Jews. And so the kingdom was able to be spread cross-culturally as well. Because we noted earlier in Galatians, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are one in Christ Jesus. Therefore, if you are part of a minority group, from a different cultural background, from a poor background, or don't think you are educated enough, none of these things matter or disqualify you from serving God. Remember that the majority of the apostles were poor fishermen, but just look what God did with them. And as John Wimber put it, everyone gets to play in the kingdom of God. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And that's all of us, not just some of us. So in conclusion, what does Acts 6, 1-7 show us? Well, firstly, we looked at distraction. Let's be wise to the devil's ploys and not be overcome uh, by distractions or sidetracked by obstacles, but continue to listen to the Holy Spirit and stay on course. For God has a plan for each one of us, and it's good. Secondly, we looked at tensions, and there will always be tensions, disagreements, and things to complain about if we want to find them. But rather than allowing them to become obstacles and cause division, which can so easily lead to arguments and breakdown in relationships, let's use them as opportunities to change and grow. And thirdly, growth. The bigger we grow as a community of believers in Jesus, the more changes we will need to make in the way that we relate to each other, the way we meet. And there will be many challenges to face along the way. But as in this example shows us in, in Acts chapter 6, if we continue to listen to the Holy Spirit and overcome the obstacles that will inevitably arise and now allow God to turn them into opportunities, the word of God will spread, will spread and the number of disciples in Pearly will increase rapidly. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this account of growing pains and racial tensions and arguments and suspicion um, and the way that the baby church overcame the issues that were threatening to destroy it by allowing the Holy Spirit to guide them. Help us to continue here, the Holy Spirit, follow his leading, Lord, as we seek to follow you in the lives that we lead. In Jesus' name, amen.